0: Thank you, Pastor Tad. Good morning, everyone. Any uh, kids that are headed to Gospel Project, hope you have a great time. And the rest of us will be in John 18 together this morning. So if you would turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, should be one. Feel free to take that if you don't have a Bible of your own. We're starting today a, a six-week series of messages through John chapter 18 and 19 in which we have uh, been planning to cover over these next six weeks, the events that span from Jesus' arrest, which we'll talk about today, all the way through his uh, burial. If you're new to Christianity, perhaps are just checking out what the Scriptures say, this is a great six weeks for you to commit to come each week because you'll be hearing the very heart of the Christian faith and the historic claims that the church believes about Christ. We'll look not only at what happened, but why. And uh, we've titled this series, The Suffering Servant, because Jesus was the ultimate servant who suffered in place of sinners. Jan Clay is with us this morning, and she is gonna come up and read for us from these first 12 verses.
1: and torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him.
0: Thank you. Jan? Your reading was clapworthy, apparently. Last gathering, Jan sneezed to get more attention. So we'll see if she does that in the next few minutes. Again. This is uh, one of those passages, I think, that when you first read it, feels like, all right, let's move on to something more important. And essentially, what it's told us is Jesus was here, then he went over there, and then he got arrested. Okay. When I saw this uh, earlier this week that this was the passage I was going to come back after missing a few weeks, I was um, not real pleased with that. My dad got Easter, Tad got the best prayer in the entire Bible, and I get the arrest. (laughs) I know what that says about my preaching. But friends, uh, nothing in the Bible is filler. Nothing's there to sort of had the space between important things. It's all of spiritual significance. And I've been deeply encouraged as I've worked through it this week, and I hope that you will be too. More than just giving us unnecessary details, this one paragraph tells us a very important truth about Jesus. We might summarize it this way. Jesus, the God-man, voluntarily gave himself up for arrest because he is the substitute wrath taker. All of that is in this single paragraph. So we're going to spend our remaining time together just taking that one sentence, breaking it down into three different parts and considering its significance today. In order to keep you on your toes, I'm going to do it out of order. So we're going to start in the middle. Um, let's first consider together that Jesus voluntarily gave himself up for arrest. Um, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't claim to uh, believe in Christ in the sense of him being your Savior, perhaps you're not so sure about the Bible, then we're really glad that you're here today. This is a wonderful time to visit a church. Irrespective of where you end up, You've gotta do something with Jesus. Jesus is the most important person who's ever walked the face of the earth. You can't remain undecided about Jesus. You gotta make a decision. Is he who he said he is or is he not? The biblical picture of Jesus is pretty clear. Scriptures say that Jesus is God, that he's always been. At a particular moment in time around the first century, he became a man. He added humanity to his deity. He lived as a Jewish man for around 33 years, and then he died a horrible death on a cross in place of sinners. Three days later, he rose bodily from the grave to demonstrate victory over sin, the power of the devil, and death itself. He taught showed himself for roughly 40 days to a variety of people, and then ascended back to heaven where he is now and will one day return. Next time, though, not as a baby, but as the ruler and judge of the world. He will come to redeem his people and to bring judgment on all who are not his people. That is the the testimony of the scriptures of Jesus. It's consistent from the very beginning till the very end. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, it is your prerogative, of course, to decide not to believe that message, that testimony. But I would ask you then, what are you going to believe about Him? And upon what basis will you believe it? And if this testimony that the Scriptures give us isn't true, then what is the truth about Christ? Who was He? What did he do? And why for these 19 plus centuries since then have so many hundreds of millions of people believed this message? Again, Jesus is the single most important person who has ever lived. Now there's all kinds of theories about Jesus for those who reject the biblical witness. Let me give you one. It goes something like this, around the first century in the 200 plus years before Jesus and in the 100 or so years after Jesus, there were several other Jewish men who claimed to be the Messiah. That's true historically, that happened. There are other people who came into the land of Palestine and said, I am come from God, I am the Messiah. I have a powerful word, and I am here to do something on God's behalf. Through me, God is restoring the kingdom. Have you ever heard of the Maccabeans, the Maccabean revolt, or have you ever heard of Hanukkah? Hanukkah is named after a leader who led a temporary recovery of the temple in which the powers outside of Jerusalem didn't Retain their power for a short period of time. And although that man in particular didn't claim to be the Messiah, a whole lot of other people said, this is the one the Old Testament prophesied about. So Jesus isn't the only guy that came along and said, I'm the Messiah. He's not the only guy that came and said, I have come from God with a message. The thinking goes that Jesus made big claims. He was a charismatic leader. But when he got to Jerusalem at the very height of his popularity, so perhaps as we would say it today, he had 500,000 Twitter followers. Everybody was on his Instagram. Everybody's following him wanting to do what he's saying to do. Then at that very pinnacle of power, when he was making his messianic stake on the city of Jerusalem. Then he came face to face with real power, with the Roman authority, and they simply snuffed him out. They arrested him against his will. They nailed him to a cross, and he remained there in the grave. Jesus just simply one more in the list of failed messianic men. That's how one of the claims goes. Now, let's leave the historical record of the resurrection out of our uh, consideration this morning. And just consider what Roman uh, John 18 says. Does that testimony about what happened to Jesus square with what John says happened in the arrest? Do you get the question? Jeremy gets it. Anybody else? Let me put it a different way. When Jesus was arrested, who had the power? Was was Jesus taken against his will and his power shown to be nothing? Was he snuffed out? Or did the story go a different way? Well, that's what I'd like us to consider first together this morning. Who was in control in John chapter 18. Well, before we look at the specific evidence we would have, would you for a second with me consider the setting? Jesus had gone from Jerusalem across a small little valley called the Kidron Valley. It's still there today. Over to the other side, the eastern side outside of the city of Jerusalem, where there is an olive garden. The olive garden is still there today, by the way. And Jesus went there often to pray with his disciples. So there was 11 disciples and Jesus. I struggled with math, but I can do that. There was 12 of them. Now, I've always imagined Jesus there in the middle of the night praying with his 12 disciples while perhaps 10, 15, maybe 20 Roman leaders and Jewish leaders came. But then I looked at this passage more closely. Look at verse 3 with me. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. John gives us a little detail that is enormously helpful. He says there was a band of soldiers. Now, this didn't mean they came with trumpets and trombones. This is a technical word that refers to a Roman cohort. Now, maybe it's been a while since you took Roman history, but a Roman cohort was a group of 1,000 soldiers. Now, practically speaking, it was more common that a cohort would actually consist of uh, somewhere around six or 700 soldiers. But even if we take that low number, there's Jesus and his 11 and Roman soldiers, 600 plus of them, along with the most powerful Jewish leaders of the day. In terms of worldly show of force, that's pretty great, is it not? I mean, As Jesus' head was bowed and his disciples were sleeping, they would have heard this marching band of hardened, battle-worthy men. Now, why did they come with that many? Well, the Jews wanted Jesus arrested because Jesus claimed to be God. That was very offensive to them. The Romans wanted Jesus arrested because they were trying to prevent an insurrection. And so if you believe the leader of another group of people who's claiming to be a king is a potential insurrectionist, then you are coming with force to snuff out any hint that there might be a riot. So if you think just historically with me, who has the power? Twelve nobodies were a massive group of soldiers. A few of you are old enough, as I am, to uh, remember when the U.S. launched war against Iraq. The name uh, of that type of military campaign was, anybody remember? Shock and awe. These soldiers came with shock and awe with a show of force and yet who had the power who's in control was Jesus as he heard them coming did he go to hide behind an olive tree or did he take his cloak up over himself and try to hide in the shadows did he take off and run who is in control? Were the messianic claims of Jesus given crushed and crushing defeat? Well, verse 4 tells us. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Three clues. Number one, the words knowing. And came forward. As those soldiers stood there looking for Jesus, who initiated actually this arrest? It was Jesus. Jesus knew he had prior knowledge of exactly what was going to happen. And with that prior knowledge, he used it not to run, but to give himself up. That's clue number one. Clue number two, in verse five, Jesus says, I am he. This is Jesus, in effect, saying, look, over here, you're looking for the one you're supposed to arrest. It's me. And clue number three, Jesus, down in verse eight, commands the soldiers to let his disciples go. I don't think if you don't have some sense of power or authority over soldiers, you tell them what to do. Very likely what happened is as the soldiers came upon the disciples, they grabbed not only Jesus, but all of them. And in that moment in which Jesus is being arrested, even in that moment, his concern was not for himself. His concern was for his disciples. He told them, I'll lose not one of you. And so he said to the soldiers, let them go. So friends, who's in control? Jesus. Jesus is the one in power. Jesus is the one in control. Jesus is the one in charge. And so this theory that Jesus was just one more man making messianic claims who Rome with their might and power and authority snuffed him out doesn't hold water even at Jesus' arrest. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with his claims? This passage teaches us that Jesus voluntarily gave himself up for arrest. Now, what's the significance of that? Why does that matter? Well, hold that question and let's consider the first Part of our summary sentence, Jesus, the God-man. Friends, there's a lot of mysteries in life, there's a lot of mysteries in the Bible, but none of them are bigger than this one. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus is simultaneously 100% man and 100% God. How exactly does that work? Well, if you can figure it out, tell me. I don't know. How is it possible for in the same being the eternal, pre-existent, all-powerful God of the universe to house himself in a body? The scriptures don't tell us exactly how that works other than to tell us that it is. That Jesus is God. And man, and oddly enough, the manner of Jesus' arrest simultaneously illustrates or demonstrates for us both his humanity and his deity. Look with me at verse 5, the first half. He says, They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. In a span of a half a verse, we have the greatest mystery of all. Look first with me at that first phrase, Jesus of Nazareth. This is emphasizing for us the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was from a town called Nazareth. It's a town that's still there today. This is a real place. Jesus had a home, Jesus had a mother, Jesus had a stepfather. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Jesus got hungry. Jesus got tired. Jesus ate. Jesus probably had zits as a teenager. Jesus took up a craft. He was mentored by his father. Jesus had a job. Jesus smashed his finger with a hammer. Jesus got sick. Jesus faced anything and everything that you will ever face. Jesus was fully, completely human. Jesus was a man. Now, why does that matter? Sometimes I think when we get into the more weighty issues of the Scriptures, it can feel as though we're dealing with the stuff of the academy, This is for theologians to argue over and use really big words and write big, thick books that no one actually reads and stick on a shelf. But friends, that would be a most serious mistake for us to make. See, Jesus' humanity is important to the rest of your day today. Let me try to illustrate that for you in two ways. Now, we're going to jump into the deep end of the theological pool. Will you do that with me? You can dive, you can make a cannonball, you can pencil, you can do whatever you want. But will you go with me for a few minutes? Okay. I want to show you why Jesus being human is the most practical thing I'll have to tell you today. Let me give you two overlapping reasons. Number one, Jesus came as a human being to inaugurate... A whole new humanity. You see, Jesus came to do what the first Adam didn't do. Jesus came as the last Adam. Now, what in the heck does that mean? Well, your Bible starts out like this. In the beginning, God made everything that there is. He made a good world. He made good people. He put them in a good place. He gave them good things to do, good relationships with Him and with each other. Real people in a real place named Adam and Eve. He gave them one command and just like all of us, they disobeyed. And when Adam and Eve sinned, in particular when Adam sinned, all of humanity was broken. The reason you and I struggle, the reason there's suffering, the reason there's hardship is ultimately because Adam sinned. Adam's task was to obey God in God's place and fill the earth and subdue it. But Adam failed. Adam did not obey God. Now, why does that matter? Well, friends, every person who has ever lived or will ever live, In the eyes of God is regarded as being either in Adam, the first one, or in Adam, the last one. You see, none of us have the autonomy that we think we do. Those of you who are from Eastern cultures have a great benefit over those of us from the West because you are much more predisposed to understand the relationship between an individual and a community. Ultimately, humanity is a community connected back to the very first human being, Adam. And so when we're born, we're not born as isolated individuals. We're born into humanity. We're born into Adam. And that means we're born into Adam's sinfulness. That means we're born under the wrath of God. Now, the only hope that you have of that changing The only hope of anybody, the only hope anybody has of that changing is for your identity to be transferred from the first Adam over into the last Adam. See, Jesus didn't have an earthly father. Why does the virgin conception make any difference at all? There would be no salvation without it. If Jesus had been born to an earthly father, he would have been a sinner, just like you and me. Jesus was born to an earthly mother, but his father is God the Father. Do you see how practical this is? Friend, if you're here today and you're not a believer, you are in Adam. That means God regards you as he regarded Adam in his sin. That means right now, you are receiving not love, comfort, peace, empowerment from God, but rather distance, discipline, wrath, condemnation. And the way that changes is not by you cleaning up your act. It's not by you trying harder. It's not by you stopping some of your worse habits and beginning some better ones. The way that changes is by transferring your dependency and trust from your own humanity onto Christ. Because you see, that, that first Adam failed in the garden, didn't he? That's what Genesis 3 says. But along came Jesus. And interestingly enough, our story today has us in another garden. This Jesus, as he was in this garden... Being tempted by Satan to give up on God, to run the other way, to betray, to pick the proverbial fruit, if you will. This Adam didn't do what the first one did. This Adam obeyed. And because he obeyed in all things, then he inaugurated the first of a new humanity, so that all who don't trust and rest and depend on their own strength, on their own Adamness, can be transferred over to Jesus, can be inaugurated in a new group, a new crop, a new humanity. Isn't that great news? So you see, Jesus' humanity is the most important, practical thing you could hear this morning. Do you want to be regarded by God as God regards His Son, Jesus Christ? Do you want to have your sinful nature exchanged for one that has now been forgiven, renewed, welcomed into God's family, promised life with Him forever? Then all of that has to do with, depends upon, Jesus being a human being. Now, let me give you a second reason, just briefly, about why the humanity of Jesus matters. And it's certainly intertwined in the first. It also matters, brothers and sisters, because you're still a sinner. Just like Jesus is simultaneously God and man, you are simultaneously a a saint, one who has been made holy in God's sight, and yet someone who still continues to struggle, to battle with sin. If, you don't, if you're not so sure about that, ask whomever it is that you live with. They can give you examples. How is it that a Christian, when he or she sins, doesn't fall under the anger, the condemnation, the wrath, the adam that they once knew. How does that happen? How does that work? That's pretty practical because you very likely already sinned today. If you haven't yet, you certainly will. Jesus' humanity is the key to that too. Listen to these words from Hebrews. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, why is it that when you sin, God does not say, I'm done. After all that I did for her, After all that I've given him, I'm finished. It's because of your high priest. It's because Jesus is fully human. He faced everything that you and I face and yet didn't fail, didn't sin, didn't reject God. And so Jesus right now, even as we're sitting, is at the right hand of the Father, And in his deity and his humanity is interceding, is praying for you and for me. That's pretty amazing to think about, isn't it? And when we sin, he goes to the Father and says, He or she is in me. Continue regarding him as you regard me. Continue to regard her as you regard me. He intercedes for us in all of our weaknesses so that we always and forever will have grace and mercy from God. That's pretty amazing. The next time you fail the Lord, whether that be minutes or hours, would you stop and don't merely feel badly for something. Would you rather rejoice as you confess that sin, that you still know grace and mercy and love from God because your high priest is sympathizing and interceding for you even then? This is a most practical, helpful truth. Jesus is a human being. Now quickly, let's consider what we more often think about that's briefly, that Jesus was not only human, he's also God. John began his letter by telling us in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, that's a way of talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he tells us a little later in that first chapter, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Of all the things John could tell us right up front, he wanted us to know, Jesus is God. Now, why does that matter? What difference does it make that Jesus is God? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. Jesus, we read in verse 5, when they asked, where, where is he? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said something that's rather strange to us. He said, I am that is the translation in English of two Greek words. Two Greek words we've already covered in this book. Ego, not the waffle. Ego, a me. I am. I am. Jesus is cramming an entire theology of God into two words. Jesus is saying, I am the God who created all that there is. I am the God who showed up in the burning bush to Moses. I am the God who is on the throne in Isaiah chapter six, around which the angels have been saying for all eternity, holy, holy, holy. I am the God who sustains all things. I am the God of all power. All grace, all mercy, all might. I am. Jesus is saying, "I'm God." Now maybe that doesn't quite strike you as being important, but when Jesus said those two words, what does John say happened? Jesus said, Ego go, e Amy. And five, six, seven hundred soldiers. What happened? It says they fell to the ground. It sounds like a Marvel comic, doesn't it? What is that? Friends, this isn't the only place this happens. In Ezekiel... When Ezekiel got a glimpse of the glory of God in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel says, I fell with my face to the ground. In Ezekiel chapter 44, when Ezekiel got another glimpse of the glory of God, he says, I fell with my face to the ground. In Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, verse 9, when Daniel got a vision of the glory of God, guess what happened? He fell with his face to the ground. In Acts chapter 9, when Paul was on his horse, headed to persecute the church in a new city, and he got a glimpse of the glory of God, Paul says, I fell to the ground. Two times more in the book of Acts, when Paul told his testimony, he was sure to say, me and everyone else with me. When we got a glimpse of the glory of God, we fell to the ground. Friends, what do all of these stories demonstrate for us? They demonstrate that we are weaklings. The mightiest among us have absolutely no power. All of your good looks, all of your money, all of your hard-earned reputation, your climbing the ladder, your honor roll, your children having an honor roll. By the way, don't put that on your bumper sticker on your car. Everything that you look to that makes you important, significant, powerful, authoritative, is nothing. Jesus is the authority. Jesus has all power. Such that when, when he said something in such a way that just barely opened the crack into the truth of something of his glory, all the might of Rome crumbled to its feet. Friends, the deity of Jesus is of tremendous significance. Because as we sing together in that last song, the power in us is not our own. It's the power of Christ. So when you face temptation later today, you need the deity of Jesus, because it's only through his deity residing within you that you can resist that temptation. Brothers, when you're sitting on your back porch later today in your apartment and you're up high and you see that attractive woman taking a run and you want to stare, the only hope you have of not drooling all over yourself is to turn to Jesus and rest in his dependency upon the Father and the Son and enjoy the fact that the very deity of Christ is in you, conquering any and every temptation if you but turn to him. Ladies, when you're at work tomorrow and your boss tells you, I want you to go and do such and such. And it is illegal, immoral, or unethical. And you're faced with, this person's in charge, but I've got to do this because I've got bills to pay. The deity of Jesus is not some far-off theological construct of no importance. It is the means through which you can say, I respect you, I need this job, but I'm not going to do that. The deity of Jesus is your power to walk in the Christian life every moment of every day. Jesus is the God man. Jesus has all power. Jesus has all authority. And friends, when you think of authority and you think of power, how is it typically used in our world? It's used for the self. It's used for prideful purposes to get what we want. But friends, Jesus didn't use his power that way. Jesus is the substitute wrath taker. Jesus used his power to voluntarily offer himself up that he might be put to death. You See, this isn't popular today, but it's true. God is angry with sin. And God is angry with sinners. And every sin ever committed by every person who's ever lived will be dealt with by God. It will either be dealt with in that own individual's condemnation, or it will be dealt with in the cross of Christ. That's it. When Jesus returns, he will come to judge the world. He will come not as a cuddly little baby, but as a judge full of wrath. Friend, where will God's anger toward you reside? Are you storing it up for that day? Or has it already dissipated, been satisfied in the death of Christ? Friend, if you will but turn from your Adamness, your sinfulness, and place your trust in Jesus Christ, the substitute, the one who offered himself in place of sinners, then there will be no more wrath for you. All that you will ever know, for now, through all eternity, is the love, the affection, the goodwill. God. This is one of those moments I wish you would holler and shout. Amen. This is tremendous news. Jesus is the substitute wrath taker. We see this difference in power perhaps most clearly in the stark contrast between Peter and Jesus. Peter had what was likely a dagger and as they came for Jesus and were moving to arrest him, Peter took that dagger out and lunged at the high priest, striking the servant, cutting off his ear. But Jesus simply held out his hands and was bound taken. Friends, Jesus was bound so that you no longer need to be bound. Jesus came not for Peter to mutilate the servant of the high priest. Jesus came to be the mutilated high priest. Jesus offered himself so that the wrath of God can be averted, fully satisfied. And you can know the love and power and grace of God forever. That same Peter, years later, wrote this, and I'll end with these words. 1 Peter chapter 2. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he, this is Jesus, was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. Not will be, not might be, have been. Brothers and sisters, you are God's. God is yours. Jesus has healed you. Let's take a moment in quiet, prayerful reflection. I'm going to ask Pastor Tad if he would come and pray for